Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you. You're a great and awesome and powerful and sovereign Lord. You rule and reign over the universe, over the galaxies, over the planets, the stars, the sun, the moon, the earth, everything is all yours. Lord, help us as your servants to surrender our lives to your lordship, to your sovereignty, to your power. Lord, everything out there in the universe obeys you. Help us, Lord, to completely obey you also through obeying your word, following your teachings. Lord, give us surrendered hearts by your spirit. Lord, work mightily, Father. If there's anyone that's coming here this morning, Lord, and, and, and they're, they're desperate for you, they're desperate for a touch from heaven, I pray, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, your finger would reach down and touch their hearts, that you would give them a taste of heaven, Father, that you would refresh their souls, that you would set them free, Father God. Father, for clarity in our minds, clarity in our life, for vision, God, for, for just for liberty and freedom and joy and peace. God, touch our lives today, God. Let us walk out of here changed, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Pour out your spirit this morning as we worship and study your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Great to see everyone this morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Amen. Hope your college team won yesterday. Mine did. <laughs> which, if you live in South Carolina, most of them won, which is a good thing. Praise the Lord. We're, we're very thankful for that. But uh, this morning, we are continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount, looking at Jesus' words. Remember, just to get you caught up, this is right after Jesus launches his earthly ministry, and uh, he goes up to Nazareth, and he goes to, uh, to uh, up by the Sea of Galilee, and there on a mountainside, on a grassy knoll, he sits his disciples down, and he starts, to, he gives the longest sermon, the longest teaching recorded in Scripture here in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he's teaching us about is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is real, Okay. Jesus brought the kingdom of God down to this earth when he died on the cross for our sins, when he rose from the grave, and he, when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, we become born again. The Spirit of God is dwelling inside of us, and the kingdom of God is here and now. So um, let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 5. Just, I'm, not gonna I'm gonna teach verses 33 through 48, but I just wanna read the opening verses so we get our minds oriented in the direction that scripture is taking us in our Bible study. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. We'll read through verse 37. Again, you, are, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you, not, you cannot make one hair white or black. 
but let your statements be yes, yes, and no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount this morning, again, Lord, pour out your spirit. Make it real. Bring it to life in our hearts as we study it this morning and deepen our faith in you. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, mentioned this last week. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was three things, three aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. Number one is to show us that God's kingdom is the opposite of the world's kingdom. As we talk about each principle in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to think about the, what the world says, what the culture says. And you're going to see for yourself that they are just the opposite. Second thing the Sermon on the Mount does, it teaches you and I everyday principles and how to live for Jesus. How to serve him from a pure heart. How to live for him. And thirdly, the, the, the title of my message is Righteousness is to show that righteousness is a matter of the heart. And that's the most important thing that you need to understand. Christianity is about God coming down and changing our hearts, okay? If your heart's not changed, the outside's not going to change. But once the heart is changed, once you become born again and the Holy Spirit's dwelling on the inside, God will work mightily in your life and not only will it change your heart, but it will also change your life. Amen. It will change your life. Um, I, I talked about this last week, but in verses Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, Jesus is going to repeat a phrase six times. And that phrase is this, you have heard, but I say to you. Okay, so what's taking place in Matthew chapter 5 is all his disciples on the hillside, they've been going to their local synagogues. And they've been hearing the rabbis say this, and the rabbis say that, and the rabbis say all these things. And Jesus is correcting, he's bringing correction to what the rabbis were teaching in the first century. He does this in verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, 33, 38, and 43. And the six matters of the heart are, that he brings up in this passage, is murder, sexual sin, divorce, Speaking the truth, revenge and retaliation, and loving others. Last week was pretty heavy. Last week we looked at murder, uh, what murder is. We looked at what sexual sin is. And we looked at the subject of divorce. Today is more of a, um, those are, they're, they're, they're all truths, but the top three really have to do with, with sin and, and, and righteousness and things that are right and wrong. The bottom three Really, I, I, I put in the category of our character, of our character and the way we live, speaking the truth, revenge and retaliation, and loving others. So really, this morning's study could also be called character study, or fruits that the Holy Spirit wants you to grow in in your walk with Christ. So we're looking at the bottom three. If you want to hear me by teaching on murder, sexual sin, and divorce, go on YouTube and look at last week's message but this week we're looking at the bottom three. So without further ado, let's dive into Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. And this deals with speaking the truth. He says in verse 33, Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, again, verse 33, in verse 33, 
This is what the people were hearing the rabbis say in the synagogues in Jesus' day. In the Old Testament, to take an oath meant to call on God as your witness to the truthfulness of what you're saying. Vows are sacred, and they carry a lot of weight. And the problem in Jesus' day that everything had turned into a vow or an oath. And people made meaningless vows out of everything. And because vows were so abused in that day, they had lost their credibility. So, so he's, he's uh, look at what Jesus says in verse 34 to bring the correction. He says, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 36, Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statements be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of the evil. Now, what you need to understand is if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, there were many oaths made. Many vows were made. Oaths and vows are biblical, okay? But they should only be used in very serious matters. Very serious matters would be like a court of law, uh, marriage, and and our commitment to God. That is the realm that we should use oaths and, and, and vows. But Jesus says here, when it comes to giving our word to people in everyday life, there's no need for an oath or a vow, is what he's saying. You know, just be a person of your word. You know, I remember back in, uh, when I was in middle school, to convince someone that you're telling the truth, I'm, I'm going to kind of reveal my age, and some of you guys will remember this. The younger generation will not. But when we wanted to convince someone that w- what we were saying was really true, what, what would we say? We'd say, well, that was next. But we'd say, cross my heart, stick a needle in my eye. That's what we used to say back in the 80s when I was in middle school. I remember that very clearly. That was the saying. If you wanted to convince someone you're telling the truth, cross my heart, hope to die, I stick a needle in my eye to convince them to believe you. Today, it's I swear on my mother's grave. Or I, I, I cringe when I hear this. I, can't, I don't like it. I swear to God. It's just, it's just unnecessary and it's blasphemy. In reality, <clears throat> uh, in reality, when a person makes these statements... What they're really saying is they, they're admitting that their word alone is not good enough. Okay? And so we need to get away from swearing. We need to get away from making oaths. Unless you're in a court of law or unless you're getting married or, or unless you're making a, a commitment to the Lord, we need to get away from these statements. So Jesus gives us three principles of using our words. Let's take it. There's three of them. Three principles of using our words. The first one is found in verse 33, where he says, fulfill your vows to God. In other words, uh, friends and family, if you tell God you're going to do something, do it. Follow through. Dig down deep. Understand that this is the Lord God Almighty, and we are called to fulfill our vows, our oaths, and our commitments to the Lord. That is our utmost allegiance, is, is to him. 
So if we make a commitment to him, let's follow through always. The second principle of using our words that Jesus says here is found in verses 34 through 36, and that is there's no need to swear. There's no need for swearing. If you have to swear, you likely have a history of not doing what you say you will do. And that leads to our third principle, which is found in verse 37, which is simply let your words speak for themselves. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Keep it simple. Don't make crazy promises you can't keep. Okay? I, I, I will lead the pack when it comes to that syndrome called foot in the mouth syndrome. I have stuck my foot in my mouth so many times over my life and said things I shouldn't have said, made promises I shouldn't have made. And, but now, as I learn the scriptures and I learn from my Savior and I learn from the Word of God, I've learned to speak less. There's a reason why we have two ears and one mouth, because we should listen twice as much as we speak. Listen to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words be few. So what do we need to do with our words and our speech? We need to weigh our words carefully. Weigh our words very carefully. Think before we speak and and understand that our words carry weight. They carry our reputation. And according to the text, the fewer the words the better. So that's, that's what we learn. It says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty. Slow down. Think about what you're saying before you tell people you're going to do something. You know, what pleases God in the area of speaking is to simply, <clears throat> I, think, I believe it's Ephesians 4.15 says we are to what? Speak the truth in love. So we're called to speak the truth in love. With, with our language. We're called to um, be honest. Just, just be honest. Be honest and don't lie. You know, build your reputation with other people by, not by swearing, but by just following through and keeping your word. That's the principles of speech that Jesus is talking about here in the kingdom of God. And if we're all honest, and I put myself in the basket too, We need to pray, and we need to say, Lord, help me in the area of my speech. Help me in the area of my words. And the Holy Spirit can use, hopefully the Holy Spirit is doing surgery on all of us right now as we're studying the Word, because that's what the Word of God does. The Holy Spirit uses it to do surgery. But hopefully what he's doing this morning is is he's he's tightening tightening us up in this area so we can speak the truth in love, be honest, and build our reputation by keeping our word. Let's continue. So that was the first one, speaking the truth. Just speak the truth, and then you have nothing else to worry about. Continue, verse 38. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 38 deals with um, revenge and retaliation. What does the Bible say about revenge and retaliation? Well, let's take a look at it. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. First off, this is one of the world's uh, two favorite Bible verses. The other one is judge not lest you be judged. They take them both 
out of context. We'll get to that second verse in a couple weeks here on the Sermon on the Mount. But this command, verse 38, where he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you need to understand that this command was given by God in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, and it was for the civil courts of Israel. It was not for individual use. It was given for the judges, for the courts. It was God's instruction uh, to judges in a court of law to impose penalties that were consistent with the crime committed. Imagine today being pulled over for doing 10 miles over the speed limit and then, and then being sentenced to life in prison. What about that? That would be tough. Or someone going out and committing first-degree murder just to be given two days in the county jail. How would you feel about that? That would be unjust. That would not be fair. This, that was the purpose of Exodus 21-24. It was so the courts would deal fair penalties for those who broke the law. That was the whole purpose of this command. But in Jesus' day, by the time of the first century rolled around, this command was taken out of context, and it was used by individuals as a basis to take revenge. That person did me wrong. They got it coming to them. That was the thought process by the time of the first century because the teachers of the law and the rabbis had taken Exodus 21 out of context, and Jesus is bringing correction to the meaning of of this verse. Look at verse 39. Jesus' correction to what the rabbis were saying. Beginning of verse 38, you have heard it was said, beginning of verse 39, but I say to you, he says, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. What does that mean? That means, do, that word do not resist, that phrase, it means do not retaliate. This, do you see, how, you see how the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world is the opposite? Because we, we, you know, we, we, we've been taught payback, pay people back. But that word do not resist, it, says, it means to do not retaliate, don't fight, and do not seek revenge. Just the thought of not wanting to pay someone back just kind of goes up our skin. It just kind of like goes against what we naturally think is right. But it's what the word of God says. And if the word of God says it, then that is final. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. God says to you, Christian, when you're done wrong, do not retaliate, do not take revenge. God says, let me handle the situation. And how many of you guys know God can handle it a lot better than we can? Okay? Because ultimately, when somebody does this wrong, you know, the genuine Christian heart says, you know, I want that person to come to Christ. I want that person to, to cl cleanse their heart of the evil and the anger. Ultimately, you want that person to come to Christ and to come to peace. And a lot of times when we get angry, we don't operate in the spirit, okay? We operate in the flesh, or at least I do, when I, when I follow my natural tendencies. But we got to do it God's way. And we got to surrender to the Holy Spirit. 
and let the Lord work in and through the situation. And he says there, the Old Testament, Matthew 530, uh, 539, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, do not take revenge. Let's continue, verse 39. He says, uh, I got this broken half. He says, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, let's clarify this. Jesus here is not talking about a literal slap across the face. To, to strike someone on their right cheek is a, a backhanded slap. Think about this. Most people today are right-handed, okay? And if you go to slap someone with your right hand, what cheek are you hitting? You're hitting their left cheek. But the text says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek. So with your, to take your right hand, which is what most people are, and to slap their right cheek, how do you have to do it? How do you have to slap someone? You have to take the hand back this way, and you backhand them. You, you, you backhand them. To strike the right cheek is a backhanded slap. That would be something that is said or done to you or I that is deeply insulting and is very hurtful. And in our pain, we want to retaliate. And when it says there, notice, notice the verse also says, when it, when it says, turn the other cheek, this phrase, turn the other cheek, um, God is not saying if someone slaps you across the face, okay, get the other side. No, he's not saying that. This, this turn the other cheek, it symbolizes our non-avenging, non-retaliating response. We don't pay back or take revenge. Now, caveat, note, Jesus is not saying here to just roll over. Jesus is not saying here to just let people mistreat you. You have a right to defend yourself, okay? But if someone does you wrong, what do you do? Number one, you know, you don't just, you don't, you don't just walk away and don't say anything or, or just let it go and forget it ever happened. No, Jesus is not saying that. If someone does you wrong, the first thing you should do is call them out. Call them out for their sin. Call them out for what they've done wrong. They need to be told, hey, what you did was wrong. Now, do it privately, Matthew chapter 18. Go to them in private, if, whether it's a believer or, or someone out in the world. Either way, either category, you need to let the person know, hey, that offended me. That, that hurt me deeply. And you need to let them know that. Also, you need to put up boundaries. You know, it's, it's perfectly biblical and fine to put up boundaries so that you don't get hurt again. You know, but you don't take matters into your own hands. And when, because when we take matters into our own hands, what that does, and I'm preaching to myself this morning too, is we're taking matters into our own hands and we're adding fuel to the fire. Where what we need to do is go to our prayer closet and pray to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us words of wisdom, words of knowledge, you know, give us a word to speak to the person. But the most important thing when, when, we, are, when we are hurt or done wrong is we need to maintain our integrity as a believer. Maintain your composure and do the right thing. That's what's, that's what's being said here. We don't take revenge. We, we're, we're peacemakers Christians are not called to be violent. We don't, we don't take things by force. You know, we don't um, attack people. 
We don't hurt people. Um, we bring the gospel of peace, the gospel of reconciliation. And we show that change in our hearts, in our everyday life. And Christ is so magnified in your life to the world when you have been hurt or done wrong and you choose to do what Jesus says instead of what the world says. Why didn't you retaliate? Why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you get them back? Because Christ is in me, and I'm surrendered and submitted to his word and being led by the Holy Spirit. So, so we, we don't take revenge. We don't retaliate. Let's continue. Verse 40. Verse 40, I believe. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. What, I believe what Jesus is saying here in verses 40 through 42 is this. Do whatever it takes to bring justice and resolution to the situation. You know, don't, don't just let it sit out there and fester. But, but address the situation. Talk with this. Uh, figure out what to do. You know, let the person know what they did is wrong. But don't let the anger and bitterness fester. Uh, ultimately, in our allegiance to Christ and being a Christian and crucifying the flesh and our carnal desires and what we want to do in our, in, our, in our physical mind is we say, Lord, I'm going to surrender to you and I'm going to work towards peace and I'm going to work towards forgiveness. You know, think about uh, when Jesus was on the cross the Roman soldiers that crucified him, what was Jesus' prayer for them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So when we extend that olive leaf of forgiveness towards our enemies and towards those, towards those who do us wrong, what we're doing is we're shining the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. I didn't say it was going to be easy, Matter of fact, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But you just got to dig down deep and say, Holy Spirit, give me the strength to do this in my life. You know, maybe the Lord, the Holy Spirit is reminding some people this morning of some things that they need to take care of. And I praise the Lord for that. You know, that's what God does to me every week. I study his word. He shows me things. And, and, and the Lord reminds me, I've got, I've got matters I've got to go take care of with people and things. So let's be peacemakers. You know, and if someone's done you wrong or you've done them wrong, go make reconciliation. Go make reconciliation. Let's continue. Verse 43. Verse 43 is the final of the six matters of the heart. And this section, verses 43 through 47, is where Jesus talks about Loving others, loving others. And we often say, you know, when we talk about loving people, we say this can be difficult, this can be challenging. You know, there are people in this world that are difficult to love. There are people in this world that are easy to love. But, we're, but we need to love all people. So let's look at what Jesus says here. Now, this is very fascinating. Um, the NASB, let me, let me just read the verse first. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemies. Now, look at that verse closely, and it says, you have heard it was said, look at the next five words, you shall love your neighbor. Now look at the next four words, and hate your enemy. What's the difference between the beginning of the phrase and the second half of the phrase? Look closely. Do y'all see it? You shall love your neighbor is what? Is capitalized. And hate your enemy is lowercase. Okay? The, the rabbis in Jesus' day had added to this verse words that are not there. You shall love your neighbor. Yes, that's in Leviticus 19.18. But the hate your enemy part, which is in lowercase, was not there. They had added to the word. The verse comes from Leviticus 19.18, which says this, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudges against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, first off, before we talk about the love, let's, let's keep this in mind, okay? This principle applies to everyone you listen to when it comes to Bible teaching. Everything you hear from the pulpit, this pulpit, everything you hear from a pastor, including this pastor, everything you hear from a Bible teacher and this Bible teacher should be examined carefully by the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is correct. Okay? And in the book of Acts, Paul went out establishing the church. He was preaching as he was going throughout the churches. And Acts chapter 17, verse 11 says, The Bereans, who were of more noble character, they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. Well, newsflash. If, you have to, if they have to examine the apostle Paul, then guess what? We all have to be examined. Okay? You need to be a Berean. You need to be a student. And you know what? Sometimes pastors say things they shouldn't say. And sometimes I've let words slip out or things I've said that, that, that weren't in line with Scripture. And I've got brothers and sisters that have come up to me and said, Hey, you know, I know you said this. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I said that? I'll go back and look at the video. I was like, Oh my goodness, I sure did. And I'll come back and I'll make correction. But everything that's said from the pulpit, you know, we need, don't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker, but make sure it's scriptural. Make sure it's, it's biblical, okay? But he says here, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But look at verse 44. Jesus is bringing correction to the rabbi's teaching. He says, no, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, you see how God's kingdom and the world's kingdom are opposite? They are completely opposite. How do we as Christians treat our enemies? How, 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 how do we treat our enemies? How do we treat those who oppose the gospel? How do we treat those who oppose the truth of Christianity? How do we treat them? Are we supposed to be angry, mad, hatred? No. We love them. We love them and we pray for them. And we remember that Jesus died on the cross for them. And he loves them. And, and, and no matter how far they've gone into rebellion or how far separated they are from God, 
We just need to pray fervently. We need to pray for them. We don't hate no one. We don't hate no one. We don't, we don't hate our enemies. Matter of fact, we, lo- like we love our enemies, and we pray for our enemies, and we want them to come to Christ. You know, um, so I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's just an oxymoron. Man, if somebody does you wrong, if somebody does me wrong, my natural inclination is I want revenge. I want payback. They need to be punished. But Christ says, not in my kingdom. Not in my kingdom. Because we want them to come to know Jesus. And we want them to experience the love of God in Christ. Verse 45, I think that's where he's kind of going in verse 45. You look at verse 45. He says, so, so that, that word, that phrase, so that, because we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Friends and family, when you and I love our enemies, which is what we're commanded to do, this is the deal. You are shining very bright for Jesus. Because the world is trained and the culture is trained to hate those who hate you, but we love our enemies. And when we love our enemies, we show the world the power of the gospel. You see, when you come to Christ and you're born again, he melts all prejudices against all people, everything. It's like all of a sudden, man, our hearts are just filled with love for every human being on this planet. And we love people. Whether they agree with us or they disagree with us, we love them with a love that's in our heart that the Holy Spirit has placed there. We don't hate them. Of continuing, verse 46. We'll read verses 46 and 47. For if you love, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? For if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You know, worldly, worldly standards is to love those who love you and hate those who hate you. But that's not our standard. That's not the standard in the kingdom of God. That's not the standard for the follower of Jesus. Our love, friends and family, is not dependent upon the world's love or their definition of love. Our love is defined by God's love and God's word. And our love hinges on the love of the Father displayed at the cross. Who did Jesus die for on the cross? He is the propitiation not only for our sins, but what does the scripture say? But for the sins of the whole world. His love is directed toward this world, displayed at the cross, and our love should be the same. The definition of love is Jesus. The definition of love is the cross. And that is what we bring to this world, the love of the Father. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the love that we display. It is a love, this love is a love that says, I will do 
whatever it takes to show Christ's love even to my worst enemy. It says, I will crucify my anger. I will crucify my hatred. I will crucify my bitterness. And I will dig down deep. And I will love with the love of the Father. And I will not hate your enemies. That verse, verse 43, you have heard us said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. It was, you shall love your neighbors. It's interesting. You, you gotta, when you, when, this is why we study the Bible verse by verse. You catch these phrases in here, and you even see how even uh, the commentators and the translators in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor. It's in caps. But and Jesus said these words, but he's quoting and making a correction from the Old Testament, but lowercase, you shall hate your enemies. So we love them. We don't hate them. And then verse 48. Verse 48 says, our final verse this morning, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I look at this verse from two angles. Do you see the problem with it? Do you see a problem with this verse? If, if, you, if you study it, and it just, you just study it as a standalone verse, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's the problem with this verse? Who's perfect? Who's perfect? No one. Yeah, the Father is perfect, yes. But the problem is we are not perfect. We are broken by sin. We are fallen. But there is one who is perfect, who can come inside of us and live inside our hearts, and he is perfect. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is in this verse. Therefore, you are to be perfect. How do you become perfect? Not by getting your life all together and living this morally straight and narrow life. You get your life perfect by putting your trust in Christ and by being born again. That's, what's, that's, that's what perfection is. The perfection is not in me and you. And by the way, there's no such thing as sinless perfectionism. You will never reach a state of perfection in this life. From this day forward, from the day you were born, you were born in iniquity, you, you will wrestle, you will fight against the flesh, you, you will never come to a state of perfection until you reach heaven. You know, when you come to Christianity, you know, and, and it comes to wrestling with your flesh and being in a fight, I like to tell people, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the fight club. You know, because we have to fight. We have to fight against our temptations. We have to fight against sin. We have to war against him. But he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, verse 48, in context of the passage, you know, to, there, there's only one way to be perfect, and that is to allow Christ to rule and reign in our lives and let his perfection shine through us. That is what is being talked about here when we talk about loving others. Friends and family, these are all matters of the heart, okay? These, these, are, these are matters of the heart that um, the Holy Spirit wants to work in and through your life and help you grow in these areas. Speaking the truth, being honest, I believe we all have room for improvement in some areas of our life. It could be speaking the truth 
this difficult truth, this hard truth. You ever heard of those? I, I think we don't talk about this one enough. That's having those hard conversations, having those difficult conversations with our brothers and sisters or family or friends or loved ones. Man, sometimes there, there, there's just conversations where you just don't want to have it. You don't want to confront the issue. You just want to sweep it under the rug and forget about it. It could be something in the church. It could be something in your family. It could be something in your loved ones. But we need, God wants to grow us in this area of speaking the truth. And the bottom line is when it comes to talking about difficult subjects and with people, especially uncomfortable situations, is just do it from a heart of sincerity. Don't be judgmental. Do it in private. No one else needs to know about that conversation. You don't need to go around and tell all your brothers and sisters and all your friends, hey, I'm going to go talk with such and such. You know, don't, don't let, just go talk to the person that you're at odds with in complete private. Let it be between you and them and the Lord. But we need to speak the truth in love and honesty and sincerity. This, the second matter of the heart, revenge, don't do it. Don't do it. What? I want revenge. Don't do it. Crucify it. Take it to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, this attitude I've had, this heart of wanting revenge, I want to get them back. I want to pay them back. Let them have it. You take that heart. You take that grudge. You take that anger and you go and you, by faith, you place it at the foot of the cross and you say, Lord, I leave this here. I leave this here, Lord. God, you know the whole situation between me and Bob and whoever else, and, and God, you're going to take care of it. That's what we do with revenge. And then loving others. We love all people. We care for all people. In the church, outside the church, friends, family, loved ones. You know, there, there, there are people that are difficult to love. I understand that. And we just need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, show me how I can love people. You know, if someone's hurt us, we know we got to put up boundaries. we got to let them know. we got to have the difficult conversation. But we need the Lord to help us to grow in this area of love for all people. Amen? So that's what I'm praying this morning as, we, as I close in prayer. I'm praying this morning for this teaching that we've looked at this morning. Go home this afternoon and, and look at the text. Maybe you meditate on the text. And, and let the Lord, let the Holy Spirit continue to work in your life. But our prayer is, Lord, help us to grow this morning in the area of speaking the truth, not taking revenge, and loving all people. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day. Lord, thank you for the study of Matthew chapter 5. And God, we pray, Lord, that um, you just do your mighty work in our lives. The Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, um, do heart surgery on us and help us to walk out of here, Lord, with a deep commitment, a renewed commitment, a rededication of, of always speaking the truth in love. Lord, help us to let go of the desire for revenge for people who have done us wrong. Help us, Lord, not to retaliate, but help us to be peacemakers and help us to do the right thing in all these areas of our life. And Lord, finally, help us to love each other. 
Help us to love each other. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love our coworkers. Help us to love all the people that we come in contact with. From the fast food restaurant to the checkout at the grocery store. Help us to love as you love us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, thank you for your word. Amen. Amen. Amen.